there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. There's two things when it comes to the success of the football club, the budget, and secondly, the decision-making. I think it's a convenient excuse to blame the Glazers. They, they knew about these issues, and somebody at the club has overruled the warning signs, the red flags which existed with regards to recruitment of individual players. I'm a 61-year-old accountant who's got no friends. Well, we're all well, hey, hey, friends, to be I mean, I'll be a friend, you <laughs> Hello friends, welcome back to The Ripple Effect with me, James Lawrence Alcott. Now, if you're watching this exclusively on Spotify, you will be able to notice quite quickly that I am in my office. I'm not in Spotify studios, but fear not, we have a fantastic interview. I've just finished chatting to Kieran Maguire, who is from The Price of Football podcast. He's also got a book out right now talking about how you would run a club. And uh, there is a link to that in the description. And we, we talk about that during the interview. Uh, but we talk about so much. I'll tell you about that in just a second. But let me give you an introduction to this week's podcast. Because first and foremost, we, of course, have to have word of the week. So iceberg is the word of the week. And I know what you're thinking. It, it isn't this supposed to be a football podcast? And isn't this supposed to be an episode about money and finances within football? Well, you're right, it is. But let's take a step back and look at football holistically just for a second. What happens on the pitch during 90 minutes of football isn't everything and is just the tip of, yeah, the iceberg. Say it with me wherever you're listening right now. When it comes to football as an entity, 90 minutes of football equates to only 0.8% of the week. The other 99.2% is vastly made up from clubs looking at themselves as businesses and making far more important decisions than those made on the pitch. And that's why iceberg is the perfect word for this week. Football isn't surface level anymore. And what goes on behind the scenes or below the water is the majority of what's important nowadays. So as I say, I chat to Kieran and oh, it's great. And I think it's one where don't skip along because, as you guys know, and hopefully you see this as a positive and that's why I keep coming back to the podcast, I let curiosity lead me. And so we have about 45 minutes with Kieran and I'm try I've got so many questions I'm desperate to ask him. And we wanted to talk about Newcastle. I wanted to talk about Tenali. I wanted to talk about the price of sacking a manager. But we weren't able to get to that. But what we were able to talk about was Everton. And Man United and what is a good owner? Because there's a lot of football fans that are kind of, they will throw stones, understandably, at the people higher up. But what I thought was really refreshing from Kieran was the fact that he has a couple of takes in here where I, could, I know that Man United fans will be screaming at some elements of it. And, but I think for him, he sees it as clear cut from his point of view, when it comes to the Glazers and the connection between the Glazers and the success or lack of success when it comes to Manchester United. We speak about Everton and the points deduction. I ask him if there is a problem with ownership in football. And we talk about his feelings on 777 and 
if it was up to him, if he would take them as owners or if not, would he feel a sigh of relief more if the deal got done or if the deal didn't get done? It's fascinating. He's very funny, charming. He's got a lovely voice and uh, yeah, just super, super insightful. So I think you're going to enjoy this week's podcast. As I say, get behind the podcast, give us a five star rating and share this podcast to the people that you know who love curiosity within football. That is what this is for me every single week. It's my opportunity to enjoy that. So I hope you enjoy it as well. Lots of love. Have a great week. Here you go. Right then, guys. So excited about the guest on The Ripple Effect this week. Kieran Maguire, who is the man to go to when you need true knowledge when it comes to the finances and ownership, but in particular, the finances. I was just uh, diving into the podcast this morning, the Price of Football podcast, which you do with Kevin Day. And it's lovely because it's sort of funny and it's so, so insightful. Um, so I'm going to be pretty quick fire here because Kieran uh, is a busy man and we've got about sort of 45 minutes, maybe a tiny bit longer. Um, so I just want to get straight into the que- questions, Kieran, if that's OK. But thank you so much for, for joining me. I appreciate it. Um, let's start off. Let's start off with Everton because I want to talk about Everton. I want to talk about Man United. And then I want to ask you some broad questions as well. But I think Everton is is quite a personal one at the moment. Um, so first things first, there's obviously there's 777 are interested and a change in ownership would cause a ripple effect, which is the name of this podcast. The first question I have when it comes to 777 is why are they interested in buying a football club that still needs to finish off a stadium? 777 specialise in acquiring distressed assets. If you take a look at the other clubs in their portfolio, They all were in some form of crisis point, and I think the same can be said to be true in respect of Everton. Farhad Mashiri, who was the owner that came in in 2016, um, £750 million has been spent on Everton since then. Um, He says it's all his money. Who are we to to dispute him or his close friendship with uh, Alicia Usmanov, um, the... uh, the person who's been banned from the UK by the UK mm. government for his close relationship with uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, but that, that's a separate issue. Um, but Fahad Mishiri appears to be wanting to turn the taps off at Everton. And you've got a half-built stadium. You've got a fantastic fan base. You've got a club with magnificent history and heritage. Yeah, so there's lots of positives. American investors firmly believe that football vastly undersells itself and they believe that they have the skill set to turn that round now ideally they'd like to get rid of relegation the american owners all right could, yeah that could wouldn't be. we all i'm a qpr fan kieran <laughs> <I'm trying to laughs> idea. wow um okay. yeah but that also means you get rid of promotion which means that qpr never well, I, I, absolutely and that's a whole podcast on its own. anyway you carry on sorry um they believe that uh, there's far that ticket prices are too cheap, that merchandise is too cheap, and and they and that clubs can engage with fan bases, and and, and I, I use this word engage very loosely, uh, because engage means uh, empty their wallets to a far mm. greater extent. Because if you look at the NFL and the NBA and and the you know, the, the the American franchise sports, the amount of money that's generated from fans, both directly and indirectly, is very high. And we don't have that to the same extent in football. So they believe a little bit of American capitalist stardust combined with the 
the benefits of uh, English football and, and sort of European football in which there isn't centralization of distribution of money, which means I, what they want is the rich, the rich will get richer and right. the poor will get poorer. Um, that That's what they want. And, and Everton are an elite club. Yeah, they've had relatively poor results in the last two or three seasons, but that's for footballing reasons, which which I'm, I'm not really qualified to comment about. And so when it comes to those financial problems that they've had elsewhere, that you would imagine is an alarming thing for fans. And, and there's a feeling with, with some of those financial problems, from what I've seen, there has been punishment and that punishment has then been, or, or sorry, there's been payments that have needed to be made and those payments haven't been made on time or haven't been made at all. That is a massive alarm bell, is it not? Yes, if, if you're looking for red flags in any uh, business form, you, you would look at the history and the legacy of the people who are about to buy an institution. And when it comes to uh, the owners of 7-7 Partners, first of all, they've been very vague as to where their money has come from. Um, secondly, we've got one of the owners, Josh Wander. And, and look, we've all made, we've all done things wrong when we were younger. Yeah, you know, I... I once had to go on a speed awareness course for driving at 35 miles an hour in a 30 zone. And their owner's done very similar. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's been, he's spent time for cocaine trafficking and there's no, there's, you know, and they're both involved the word traffic. So yeah, yeah no I've, you, I've got to do a course on Friday. Bizarrely oh, enough. How ironic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, I hear that. I hear that. We make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Slightly different. I, I think the severity of both is slightly different, but I, I yeah, but I guess that, that's an interesting thing to talk about actually, maybe then, because you know, I do want to ask about the sort of Usmanov situation in terms of how much has that led to where Everton find themselves now. But in terms of in terms of sort of what you've done in the past and what you're going to do in the future, no one truly knows what that is. And I know you've obviously written a book on um, sort of the being fit and proper to to have a, a you know a football club. How do you feel about the history of? of an owner and if there's elements of, of dirtiness in that because there's a general feeling that rich the richest people in business have probably done something a bit cheeky at some point i i absolutely agree with you you, you, you don't get to make an omelet without cracking some eggs and and um in order to become a millionaire and then a billionaire you you have you have to make tough decisions and, and there's going to be uh, negative consequences i think what concerns me in relation to Everton's owners is that there's too many there's too much noise um they had an investment in British basketball and we're probably talking around about seven eight hundred thousand pounds was due to be paid across and that money was not paid on time now has it been paid eventually yes it has um if you read the New York Times they've got a very good journalist called Tarek Panja and, and Tarek is is one of sort of the old school uh, investigative journalists. Yeah, they're not interested. He's not interested in gossip. He just wants to. He, he wants to lift the carpet and and have a look at what's underneath. Right. Um, he made a claim recently that seven 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 hadn't paid their credit card bill, and you're going, well, this is just a few hundred grand. So if if those if those issues are arising, it's either due to incompetence, i.e., you forgot to pay the bill, and again, mm. we've all done so, or it's indicative of an institution which is spinning plates and it's it's trying to stop them from toppling over. 
And if you're going to inherit financial commitments running into many hundreds of millions of pounds in, first of all, the operational losses of Everton, which are significant on a year-by-year basis, and secondly, the Bramley Moore Dock project, how's that going to be funded? Um, you you do worry. When I look at the other uh, industries that Josh Wander is connected with, aviation, not doing very well. You know, people people aren't flying the way that they used to. So that's right. not great. Um, he he's in, he's made most of his money through something called structured payments, and the way that it works is this. You know, for, for, I'm not party political, but we have an NHS which I think we still all love, although it's yeah, it's pretty much on its knees at present. In the USA, medical care is completely different, and quite often what we've seen is that that somebody's been awarded. Uh, a significant amount of money by a court. So let's say that you you've got an illness, you've got something's happened to you, and you've been you you won thirty million pounds over the next ten years. But you need an operation in three weeks, yeah. and that money's being paid on an annual basis. What Josh Wander and his uh, and his merry men will do is say, uh, okay, you, you're owed thirty million over ten years. Tell you what, we'll give you fifteen million today, and we'll yeah. collect the money on your behalf. So so they make money because they, they get very good deals on the back of that. And, and I'm not saying that they're ambulance chasers. Yeah, I'm not saying that they're cynical manipulators of people's misery, because that would be very hard thing to say. But the facts um, are that. Those, yeah, those, those are the facts. Um, and that, that worked very well in an environment in which you could borrow money, because what Wanda would, or 777 would do was they would borrow money, and then they would use that money to pay off the people in, in financial distress, and they'd make their money through you know, the margins. Interest rates have gone up significantly over the course of the last you know, two to three years, post-COVID, post-invasion of uh, Ukraine and so on. And that's that's made it more difficult for Wanda to borrow money. So the level of profitability in his mainly successful industry, I think, has has been reduced. So where's he going to get the money from in respect of Everton? Here we seem to be very, very vague, and and that makes me feel slightly uneasy. Are they going to have another leverage buyout, as we've seen in the case of Manchester United and the Glazers, and ALK Capital and Burnley? The simple answer is we don't know, and not knowing is not something that I'd like. At the same yeah. time, you know, if if you're if you're a drowning man and somebody throws you a life a life a life belt, you, yeah, you don't say yeah shirt and tie don't match, mate. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. There's there's that issue as well, and I think some Everton fans will say it can't be worse than Machiri, but if you take a look at what happened with Scunthorpe United, uh, you know this year, if you take a look at what's happened at Bury when they went from Stuart Day to Steve Dale, if you take a look at what happened um, at at Wigan, uh, you know when they when they had a new owner who who within three weeks had put the club into administration. Sometimes the fire can be worse than the frying pan. Yes, yeah, and and I I understand that um, that desperation at times. QPR a long time ago um, took a loan that just hampered to an outrageous degree. Um, in your in your gut, when it comes to this one, because the one question I had was, you know, so what if they don't take over? Um, what does your gut say on this? Would you would you be have a, a greater sigh of relief if they t- if it, the deal was done or if the deal didn't come to pass? 
I think I would be more concerned if the deal was done because I think you're actually kicking the problems down the road a wee bit. Um, I think Everton is a fantastic proposition for a mm. new owner and getting the right people in um, could make that club very competitive at the top half of the Premier League. Um, nothing it, nothing gives me any confidence when I look at 777 as, as an ownership proposition. Um, and, you know, ultimately the future is uncertain and I, and I could be could be talking complete hogwash. But sure. there's an awful lot of red flags. We've, we've not seen success at their clubs to date. We've not, and uh, they saying, "Oh, we go, you know, that we've got the advantage of a multi-club ownership model, and uh, we 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 can use algorithms and we can use financial data, football data analytics." And I say, "Fair enough, but but show us show us the money, show us what you've achieved to date." And they go, "Oh, well, yeah, no, not not quite got it cracked yet." Right? Yeah, and it, it feels like I did want to ask you this question at some point, so maybe now's the right time because we've spoken about red flags a couple of times. So, from a broad point of view. What is the sort of checklist of a, a good owner, and what is the checklist of a uh, you know of a bad acquisition, you know, a bad ownership sort of takeover, or a, a, you know, someone coming in like a seven seven? Because I think what I wanted to do with you, which I know you do on the podcast, um, and so everyone should go check out the podcast. But there is a lot of um, there's a lot of anger thrown at, at a board. Um, at different times and I feel like sometimes that is just coming from the fact that they're kind of over there and up there and it's easy to kind of shout at them and you can't really cobble together a real answer for what's happening on the pitch Um, and so let's make it be about him and or her and their recruitment so when it comes to the ownership of a club that maybe you're frustrated with the the results right now with them um and then also, you know, if someone is coming in, what, you know, what is a good owner in your mind? What's the perfect owner look like? And what, what are the things you should be looking for to go, OK, well, maybe it's just not working this season. OK, um, a good owner is somebody that invests equity in the club rather than loading it with debt. A good owner is somebody that doesn't, uh, uh, as, doesn't overpromise and underdeliver. Yeah, my, my wife said that to me on our wedding night. And um, a, a good owner is somebody who has a long-term strategy. So, uh, and therefore says, this is what we're going to aim to do. Now, look, I'm, I'm a Brighton fan. I, I genuinely think we've got the perfect owner in the sense that Tony Bloom came in and the first thing he did was that he, he worked on the infrastructure of the club. Yeah, the boring things. The things which mean that in five years' time, you've got a slight advantage over mm. your peer group um, in terms of the, the state. Yeah, Brighton moved into a 20,000 capacity stadium. What we hadn't realised is that Tony Bloom had arranged for it to be a, a 30,000 capacity stadium, uh, and we were completely blind to that. He built training facilities, which meant that Brighton probably had the best training facilities in the championship. Um, he, he set a budget and stuck to it, so therefore... They didn't do the equivalent of of twisting on nineteen in terms of when it came to the January transfer window. Um, they didn't decide to go right. We're gonna we're gonna gamble, you know, twelve million pounds in the championship on a striker who the manager thinks will get the yeah you know, the fifteen goals that will get yeah. you into the playoffs or in, into automatic promotion. So it was it was very long term 
vision. Um, I had a long conversation with Andy Holtz, who's the Ac- the Accrington Stanley owner, who, again, I think is a fantastic uh, example. He says, we set a budget, we stick to it, we've improved the facilities for away fans, so more of them come and they stay longer, so we make more money. They've got a fantastic clubhouse, and myself and Kevin, who, who I work with on the podcast, we, we did a live show at, at their clubhouse. And Did he previously, did he recently, sorry, um, tweet saying that he'd had enough? Is that the same man? Yeah, that, that was 10 days. And I mean, I, I did a half hour interview with him last week and I'm not trying right. to plug the podcast, but no, I, I think it, let it me was, do that. <laughs> it, it was it was a decision made in sorrow rather than joy because right. of he, he I think he feels very let down by one or two people. But yeah, right. that's that's brother. But he says, I'm the custodian of the club. I'm not here to make money out of the club. Um, I'm here to give it a make make the club a focal point, the hub of the local community, who under, somebody that actually understands what it's like to be from West London or Manchester or Newcastle, and uh, rep- represent the the town or city uh, to make the people proud. I, I agree with you that it's very easy to scapegoat owners and managers because if you have twenty four. Pep Guardiola's in the championship managing clubs. And if you've got 24 Roman Abramovich's funding clubs, you know, Abramo- Chelsea lost £900,000 a week for 19 years. You could have 24 of those in the championship. Three of those clubs will still be relegated. And therefore, mm-hmm. you'll probably have half a dozen sets of fans screaming blue murder at the manager and the owner because it's the easy thing to do. And I, and I genuinely feel, yeah, as a as a foot, ultimately, I'm a football fan who happens to have a big calculator. Yeah, that's that's my job, and um, I genuinely feel as fans, perhaps we need to take a step back at times because the question I get asked most of all in relation to going on to you know football fan club podcasts is how much money? What's what's the maximum money we can spend? Yeah, you know, we want we want to gamble, and the trouble with gambling is you lose off you lose more often than you win. And if you do lose, then you you should really sort of lick your wounds and 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 you know rid, get get yourself together again. But fans seem to have this this sort of it's a bit like uh, it's a bit like the Men in Black movie. They sort of got this this magic yeah. pen, and they forget that last season we overspent, and the season before that we overspent, and therefore they say, why aren't we spending money this season? If you take a look at Manchester United. Their fans are screaming, yeah, why are we taking players on loan? This is Manchester United. What they've not realised is that the Glazers had actually sanctioned a budget such that they owed close to £300 million in outstanding transfer instalments from previous years. Well, it's a bit like your credit card. You, know, you can't spend money on your credit card if you're already up to, if you're already maxed out on, on the limit. Yeah. But we, we, we're, we're living in a world in which short-term memory um, is... It, it takes over long-term strategy, and and that uh, for me, a good a good good owner plans for for bumps in the road, has the strategy, builds up the club in in terms of its its capacity to generate income, and the budget works on the back of that. And the, yeah, because I, I agree. Like when you are a fan of, of a QPR or a, you know, and a Brighton are at the best side of it, but you've you know you've had had both. I think what you start to realize is there is another season and sadly I will be there. So like so there's no there's no rush, but I think sometimes it's possibly for the 
for the bigger clubs and, and I guess the cliff edge of the Premier League and because coming back to Everton for a second there's there's a feeling I've seen some people saying that that you know Everton can't come back from getting relegated and you know if they go down they might not come back up and to a point that is of course that is true you know and we've seen QPR, Wolves, Leeds, Southampton, Leicester, numerous, numerous clubs go down to League One. But they, you know, they do still remain big clubs and there still is always another season. And that can often, and you can get yourself back up there. Um, but what is interesting, I think, these days is is those cliff, cliff edges from the Premier League to to uh, the championship and then down from the championship well, and then it almost creates a, it's starting to create a bit of a cliff in the middle of the division as well and then again down into to League One um, the custodian thing is that for, for a Man United for example is that a romantic idea to, to, for, for the custodian to be okay with for it to not be about making money or are there, you know, when you're talking about a good owner, I, I understand you. I think you're concentrating on someone who is sort of the bulk of the, the, the EFL or the Premier League. But for those sort of juggernaut clubs, do do they need something a little bit different? Because the one thing I would say, if you're looking for someone who, you know, gets the community, gets the club, is a custodian, you know, is not bothered too much about the sort of overall making of money and it being a cash grab, that really narrows down the amount of people that you can bring into to a club. Moving on to the Man United situation. <laughs> I mean, God, where do I start with this? Well, I'll tell you what I'll start with. Gary Neville was talking about, there was a clip that went viral. Carragher's going, look, you've got to focus it on, you know, the team, the identity, like how are they playing? How are they set up to play? And another great example of Brighton where they have both. You know, they have an identity of how they're going to play. They're going to dominate the game. Lewis Dunk is going to have over 117 passes in 80 minutes of football, whatever it is. Um, so that's a fair point. But Gary Neville was sort of very high on the, you have to utilise, not utilise, you have to accept the that the ownership situation is an excuse for how a team is playing on the pitch. With your sort of vast experience, is that a, is that a, a real thing? Or is that something that becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy because it gets grabbed as an excuse? I think it's a bit of an easy get-out cause. If we take a look at Berry, they were promoted from League Two to League One under Steve Dale. Steve Dale was a horrible human being. Um, and there were things taking place at Berry which came to light. Uh, so I think it's a convenient excuse uh, to, to, to blame the Glazers. If you actually, there's two things when it comes to the success of a football club. A, there is the budget. The budget is important. There's no doubt about it. And secondly, there's the quality of the decision making when it comes to uh, talent, recruitment and retention. Manchester United have spent on a net level more than any other club over the course of the last decade in, in the Premier League. What they've been very poor at doing is buying the right place. And this, you know, I'm football finance. I'm not a football. I'm I'm not qualified to talk about football. I always say this. 
Um, but you take a look at the level of sales of the club. Yeah, when, when was the last big sale that Manchester United had? You know, it was. Uh, uh, when was? Uh, if, if, yeah, I'm studying. <laughs> yeah, and if you take a look at the players that they bought over the course of the last decade, when was the last one you, which you would say this was an unqualified success? And and I and I've always been arguing that Bruno Fernandez has been. But the more I look at him, if ever person was less qualified to be a captain of a football club because they're, they're just focused on their themselves. And I, I've never seen a player down tools at a, during a match the way that he did at Anfield, which I thought was one of the most disgraceful performances of all time. Mm. That that it's, it's it, therefore you have to say, okay, who is making those decisions? And you've had two chief executives since David, David Gill and Sir Alex Ferguson were a really good pairing. You know, one of them understood the business, one of them understood football. They've been replaced by two rugby union fans in Ed Woodward and Richard Arnold, who, you know, sure they're nice enough guys, but yeah, I, I've heard enough stories, uh, which which means that the culture of the club makes me feel quite uneasy. Um, and they've then not appointed a director of football. If you if you take a look at the success of Liverpool, yes, they got the right manager in Jurgen Klopp, but they also had in Mike Edwards and Ian Graham, people who understood the data. And and Liverpool have bought very well on a very consistent level. Manchester City have taken the same approach. They've, they've got Tiki and, and they've got other people at senior positions who understand football, but they've also recruited somebody who has a PhD in astrophysics into their recruitment team because he understands the numbers. And that doesn't appear to be the case. Yeah, the only numbers that Manchester United are interested in is how many how many social media followers does Cristiano mm. Ronaldo or Paul Pogba or Jordan Sancho has? Oh, we'll sign them then. But isn't there a, isn't there a basic understanding that you you go for best in class if you have the capability to do that? And and that understanding of a, of a hierarchy of a the football side of a, of a football club is kind of well trodden. So why do you think that has hasn't been able to be put in place at Man United? Under the Glazers, because the people making the decisions aren't good at making decisions. So, does that go? Does that sort of is that a counter argument to to the idea that of what Gary Neville is saying in terms of the ownership that does have that trickle down effect? Um, yeah, the the I think the Glazers will admit that they know nothing about football, so therefore they they've employed chief executives who employ the people in the football side of the business, and to me. You know, people say to me that the Glazers are the worst, the worst owners in football. They're not. I mean, yeah, the, the, it's, it's a generous budget. The Glazers, Glazers aren't responsible for for Manchester United failing to do due diligence on certain players who who I'll I'll tell you about after the podcast. But I'm, I'm not prepared to mention on the podcast because I knew things about them, and and, and either either they did know about them and they ignored it, or they they knew about these issues and somebody at the club has overruled the warning signs, the red flags, which existed with regards to recruitment of individual players. Um, so I, I think it's a boardroom issue rather than, you know, how often has Sheikh Mansour been to see Manchester City in, what, 14 there twice? So, you know, it could be argued that he's not particularly interested. Admittedly, he's he's underwritten a pretty big budget at Manchester City, but Manchester City break even mm. on, on an annual basis. I, I know there'll be snarky comments with regards to yeah, the charges leveled against them. And I fully understand that. 
Manchester City are, are a pretty well-run ship, in my view. So, so with Manchester United, kind of, are you are you suggesting that the main role of the Glazers is to provide a budget? Because they can then stay out of the way of it, can't they? Yeah, they. Yeah. It's, it's to sign off on the budget because they don't put any money into the club themselves. Yeah. Now, where this disadvantages Manchester United is that under the Premier League rules, an owner is allowed to put up to £90 million on a rolling three-year basis, which will assist the budget. But yeah, Manchester United is the biggest club in the country. You know, let's, let's, let, let's stop the nonsense. You know, let, let, you know, and and I, you know, I, I get a bit fed up with the, oh, yeah, well, their fans are based in you know, Lagos and uh, you know, Mumbai and so on. Doesn't matter. They, they they generate more money. They they sell more column inches. I, I know. Yeah, I'll be hypocritical at saying otherwise. Yeah, if I got a Manchester United story on the podcast where I put out Manchester United information um, on on Twitter, I, I put one out on Saturday morning and it eight hundred thousand views. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm a I'm a sixty one year old accountant <laughs> who's got no friends. Well, they're all well, hey, hey, friends. To be fair. I mean, I'll be a friend, Kim. <laughs> Amazing. Um, okay. So, okay, some quick fire questions when it comes to Man United. First of all, is this taking longer than expected? The the takeover, yeah, yes, um, and part of the reason for that is the Glazers a can't agree amongst themselves as to what they want, and b um, they nickel and dime, uh, for want of a better phrase, uh, certainly. All I can describe as senior sources close to the Sheikh Jassim bid. Um, comments I had via them was that they felt that they had a deal. They felt that they'd made a, a very fair offer on more than one occasion. And on each occasion, the Glazer says, you yeah, well, go away, we'll think about it. And they come, we want more, we want more. Yeah. You can imagine if you're trying to buy a house under those circumstances or a car or a big ticket purchase. And, and in the end, they were, walked away uh, because they got so fed up. But, they, but they'd been messed around um an awful lot uh, and that has delayed the process yeah you know, we should not be taking 12 months to sell right. um a a company which has a very clearly defined set of assets and is in an industry which is high profile so therefore you're going to attract a lot of potential bidders so now we're at a point where ratcliffe looks like he's coming in um they have resisted a full sale uh, do you do you believe? I mean, we've kind of touched it. I had a question: Can United succeed with the Glazers in power? I mean, would your short answer be yes? They can if you get the right, you know, people. You know, allow the right people to uh, be smart enough with the football club. And and with that in mind, that feels like Ratcliffe is coming in. He will have twenty five percent, but he will kind of have a hundred percent responsibility of the football operations. Manchester United had that success under the Glazers. They've won the Rumbelows Cup last year. They've won the Champions League. They've won the Premier League. They've won the FA Cup. Now, I, if, 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 you, if you as a QPR fan had finished third in the Premier League last season and won the League Cup, would you have been unhappy? I would not have been unhappy, no. Yeah. Right. So, so therefore, they have had success. Yeah, and, and again, this, this, yeah. Is, this is short-term. It's, oh, they've, they've lost five games out of ten this season. Um, you'd be happy with just to have lost half your matches. But I guess it's I guess it's about expectations, isn't it? And I think Man United fans expect when you are the biggest club in the world, as you've said, to be winning a a title with every decade at least. Do you know what I mean? 
So with with Ratcliffe, is that, is that, is that entitlement though? Because Liverpool won it once in thirty years, and, and you don't see the same level of well, hostility yeah. towards their owners. Well, I think I think it's a great thing in terms of you have to accept that sport is sport, and and as long as it is, as much as business is trying to pull it away from that, thank goodness there is. It's still a low scoring game with high variables so that kind of gives us all a little bit of hope with Ratcliffe why and, and him getting 25% um, of the club why would the Glazers ever after this say he comes in does a great job and you know revenues spike and they've been suggesting that there has been a rise in revenue anyway and that's why they've struggled to sort of get the sale price correct why would they sell any more to him um, because what is likely to be the case is that there will be a contract which will say, I can buy 25% in 2023 stroke 2024, whenever it's going to be. And then in two years later or three years later, I, I will have the right, so I'll have the option perhaps to buy a further investment which will give me a controlling stake. Um, and this will be at such and such a price, which will be linked to the quoted share price on the New York Stock Exchange, or will be linked to the intervening success of the club on the pitch. Yeah, there, 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 there's likely to be um, an opportunity for him to to take this thing further. Would that need to be baked into the contract at the initial twenty five percent? Because if that doesn't happen, then then why would they ever do it? It needs to be in there right at the start, right? Um. I think it would certainly be useful. What it, am I allowed to use rude language? Oh, yeah, go for it, mate. Okay. Um, buying the 25%, um, I've, I've described this as a cock-blocking exercise <laughs> in the sense that it would make it very difficult for, for a second party, another party, to come in and buy a controlling interest in Manchester United. So it does give, uh, it would give Sir Jim Ratcliffe a lot of leverage when it comes to the the future of Manchester United. If the club is a success, the, the benefit for the Glazers is that they could sell out at an even higher price. And, and you know, we've seen with both Project Big Picture, which they were very much behind, which meant they would take control of the domestic game, and also the Super League, where effectively they and their cronies would take take control of the European game. Is that's what they want? Money and control is is their driving ambitions. So many more questions. I, maybe sometimes I have to like I'll have to stand outside your door. Maybe come to your house, find your location, and uh, and and finish this off properly. That, that sounds but, slightly stalkerish, James. <laughs> if you don't mind me, saying. I think it's just, <laughs> I don't think it sounds slightly stalkerish. So, uh, so there's there's other questions I would love to ask you. I did say earlier that I wanted to ask about Usmanov in terms of a with Everton and also the points deduction. I think we should I should get to that as well because I think that's the most important stuff uh, here. Usmanov, the the ripple effect of him being sort of you know frozen out of all of it how how huge has that been to I know that Mashiri's obviously created a lot of problems himself uh, with the overspending prior to all of that but has him being sort of shut out of all of this has that accelerated anything well the simple answer is we don't know with any precision um a a questioning a cynical view would say that Usmanov was always the power behind the throne at Everton. And there is anecdotal evidence, which has never been proven, that uh, when it came to the recruitment of managers, 
uh, Usmanov uh, was was claimed to have entertained some of those managers that he had been in on Zoom conversations. Uh, there, there's, there's claims that, in respect of one of them, that uh, the interview effectively took place at his one one of his many mansions uh, based. I think it was in the Black Forest, um, and so on. So his close relationship with Farhad Mashiri has has always caused some people to raise an eyebrow. Um, and if you take a look at how Mashiri was able to buy Everton, it was through Mashiri selling his shares in Arsenal to Usmanov. And with the proceeds of that, he bought Everton. Um, then there was the very strange £35 million payment from an Usmanov company, which gave it an option, not a commitment, to have uh, naming rights on a stadium which didn't have planning permission at the time. You know, that that's a very that's a very strange investment uh to 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 be undertaken. So all, all of those call into question, you know, just exactly was what was the relationship. Uh one of Usmanov's nephews ended up on the board of Everton Football Club and he resigned six months later. Purely coincidentally, he'd also been charged at the time with assaulting an individual in London. Um, but he said he was due to other reasons not connected with that. So all, it, it all it all just looks a bit Machiavellian, and, and you know it, it's it would make for a great soap opera. Uh, and and I think when your football club becomes a soap opera, and I think that's what's happened at Everton and and at Manchester United, also at a time when you know join you know fans of the club are mourning the loss of, of two people very closely connected with those the mm. club. Um, it, it's been very difficult for them to deal with. So when you when you talk about soap opera, how do you stop a soap opera that started when it comes to the ownership and all of that? Is there a can you get away from the soap opera? How do you get away from the soap opera? Um, you employ boring people. <laughs> what an answer! That is stunning. Okay, that's what I got a brush. No, I love it. Yeah, I get it. Who tell the truth? I think because I think that's what happens then with fans is that they get well. Hang on, that's not exciting. You're telling me we haven't got the money for this. I love it. I I like it when it kind of there's that transparency there. The court hearing. So that there was a hearing for the points deduction um, last week. Everton now awaiting the verdict from that independent panel. The Guardian reported that Everton recorded losses of 371.8 million when the rules of the Premier League state that a maximum is uh, 105 million is the most allowed. Everton claim no wrongdoing as they believe they will be cleared due to the claim they received allowances from the competition for the impact of COVID. Had to kind of finish on this and then one final question, which is if they are found guilty, will the verdict of this hearing uh, be precedent setting for the rest of the Premier League clubs? Do you see that being the first of many? And would you see that as a good thing? Um. I think it will set a precedent in the sense that if you take a look at the Premier League handbook, it says that a panel which is uh, examining the charges levelled against any club or the charge levelled against any club um, has an unlimited range of tariffs from everything from a finger wagging, don't do it again, you know, bit shoddy paperwork, all the way through to kicking the club out of the competition. Now, I think those are, you know, those are very much at the extreme levels. The, the main issue will be: is is the punishment if found guilty? And remember, in, Everton are innocent until found otherwise. I'm a great believer in habeas corpus. 
Um, if they are found guilty, I think the the two main types of sanction will be a financial and be a points deduction. If it's a financial sanction, then those clubs that have unlimited financial resources would be going uh, to quote Homer Simpson, woohoo, yeah. because they'll say, well, that's that's just the cost of doing business. You know, it, we we do not see this as as a constraint or a restraint in terms of our ability to spend money. We'll, we'll just pay the fines. Um, so, yeah, that, that's it's a bit like the water companies who who pay paltry fines and still pump out you know, mm. into our waterways nonstop. If it's an on points deduction, uh, and we have seen, I think, precedent there in the EFL, then I think it will act as a deterrent from from clubs with new owners or even with existing owners who feel that they can uh, just uh, pay lip service to the profitability and sustainability rules. And so final question for me, I asked on Twitter for people to pop in a few questions and inevitably, sadly, we haven't been able to get all of them. But I think this is a great one. Morgan Bruce, I, I just the first sentence is not actually a question from him, but I, I, I feel like it should be. He said, football clearly has an ownership problem. So my final question to you is, does football have an ownership problem? It, it does have an ownership problem in the sense that... Um, it encourages people to treat football clubs as trophy assets. It encourages people to focus on short-termism. Um, it does not have as big an ownership problem as they have in rugby union, where we've lost London Irish, Wasps, Worcester Warriors and Jersey Reds over the course of the last 12 to 15 months. Um, had it not been for the owners of football clubs during COVID, we would not have nine, we would not have kept the ninety-two the way that we did. So, yeah, there's lots of bad owners. There's also lots of people that I have huge admiration for in football. The likes of you know, Norwich City fans are giving Delia Smith grief, but she's she's Norwich through and through. You've got Andy Holt at Accrington. You've got Jason Stockwood at Grimsby. You've got Mark Pallios at Tranmere. People who are from from that area of of the town or city who want people to have a degree of pride through the football club and, and a sense of identity, which you get nowhere else in life. I'm, I'm fortunate I've got a job where I, I, I travel all over the world. And when people find out that I've, I've lived most of my life in Manchester and I work in Liverpool, the first question is City or United, Liverpool or Everton. And that starts a conversation. And there is so much love and admiration for English football the owners have to take some credit for that, but they also have to take some responsibility for the things which have gone wrong. Great place to finish. Although, yeah, as I say, I will be visiting you soon. Um, Kieran, uh, tell people very, well, not very quickly, as long as you want, but I know you've got to go. Um, tell people about the book and the podcast. Um, I, I binge listening to the podcast currently. I'm excited about the book. Unfortunately, it's, there it is, right behind you, which you can see exclusively on Spotify if you would like to watch this uh, video, if you're not just listening. But unfit and improper persons. Tell people about the book. Uh, yeah, go for it. Well, um, I've had loads of people saying to me, um, you talk the talk, could you walk the walk as a football club? And I say, well, fair comment. There's there's two or three reasons why I can't do that. A, I've not got the inclination. I'm a Brighton Hove Albion fan, and, and we've got an owner who is, I think, close to perfect. Um, secondly, I'm skin. I'm, yeah. I'm a teacher. I'm on a teacher's salary. <laughs> thirdly, I'm far too old. Um, so, yeah, to, to, to achieve uh, what a change in a football club, I think you are talking you know, a good decade. So, 
it's actually a lot quicker to write a book and and myself and Kevin. Kevin's a brilliant writer. He's a comedy writer. And uh, so Have I Got News For You as associate producer there. And so he's, he's an absolutely brilliant writer. So we we put this book together. Um, Kevin's written it pretty seamlessly. I, 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 I effectively act as his Jiminy Cricket. Okay. Uh, when he's trying to spend too much money, my job is to go in there and say, well, yeah, this, 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 is how, this, this is how budget works. This is what you can do. Um, now, clearly I'm biased, uh, but uh, it, it, it's a funny book. Uh, and, as, and as Gary Lineker, no less, because uh, Kevin used to write for Gary when he was on Match of the Day in the early years. Um, it, it's a funny book, which, which uh, articulates and deals with serious football issues as well. Fantastic. A great, so- a, a great, a great stocking filler. Indeed. For Christmas but for somebody who you don't really like that much, but you know they like football and they're slightly and they're slightly different. Okay, uh, there will be a link to said book in the description. As I say, go check out Kieran. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. I just reached out and you said yes, and that's wonderful, Kieran. So thank you so much for spending a bit of time with me. Incredibly insightful, and I'll, I'll let you go. Um, but good man, appreciate it. Cheers, James. All the best. Bye bye. Cheers, pal. Right, guys, fascinating interview, as you've just heard. Did want to say thanks again to everyone who is listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Just one podcast this week, but if you haven't checked out last week's, we do a Pyramids of Allcott where we are breaking down Premier League managers and talking about the eight managers that will be making way. But the whole back catalogue of the Ripple Effect is banging. All right? So go check it out. Thanks for listening. Five-star review, all that good stuff. Lots of love, goodbye. Thank you.